Hey guys, Sylvia Frost here with the podcast Indies Who Sell. We've got a really awesome guest for you today, but before he and my colleague Mary Novak join me, I thought I'd give you a little bit of background information. Scott Pratt is the author of the Joe Dillard series, and he's sold over two million books. As if that wasn't enough, he's gotten reviews from Publishers Weekly that read as such. Pratt's richly developed characters are vivid and believable, especially the strong Southern women who fight their male-dominated culture from behind a facade of vulnerability in his brilliantly executed debut. We really enjoyed talking with Scott, and I hope that you enjoy listening to what he has to say just as much, because there is lots of wisdom to be gleaned. All right, let's get to it. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to first say, I just, I really enjoyed your books. I mean, we read a lot of books and I read a lot of books for fun anyway, but um, as you'll find out as this conversation goes forward, Mary is much more versed in the genre of legal, thrill than, legal thrillers than I am. I probably almost have read close to no legal thrillers before. So this was really, um, a really sort of exciting new foray into new genre for me and I'm so glad that you're in my introduction because I really loved how um, all the details and the vivid accuracy and I thought you did a really interesting job with female characters which doesn't always happen. <laughs> it's hard to do. It's hard to do right yeah. and I, I mean we'll talk more about the thing specifically that we loved but um, I think probably one of my favorite moments was the moment in um, the very first book when Joe is opening up to Caroline and you have all these kind of like, uh, you know, intense, you know, legal machinations and who done it and all that. But there was just this really tender, solid emotional core to all of your books that I just found really impressive and compelling. And I think just adds this richness that you, that I might not find in say like a book like by Jeffrey Archer. Um, and I just really loved it. So not to say that Jeffrey Archer is bad. Thank you. I try to, I don't know, inject some heart into them. You know, I, re I really do. And I find myself sitting there crying sometimes when I'm writing them. And it, uh, which is, you know, it's a Hemingway moment, you know, you sit down and you just open up a vein and bleed. To, to me, they're very personal. They're almost, a lot of them, parts of them are autobi autobiographical. And yeah. it, so I just, I just kind of, I just kind of open up and I'm honest with the readers. And I think that comes through. And a lot of well, people think that's one of the reasons they've done so well is people just recognize that I'm being yeah. yeah. I feel like now maybe my reading is limited, but I feel like to get that from a male author in particular is a pretty special quality. Um, and I'm sure it's going to come up a few times. So you are best known for the Joe Dillard series. Um, Joe Dillard is, well, he's various flavors of attorney in the books that we've seen. He's been a criminal, <laughs> uh, the criminal defender and he's been the prosecutor. Um, he has, uh, you know, he's got a wonderful relationship with his wife and his two grown kids. And I noticed that the numbers kind of match up <laughs> with the numbers in the family on your bio down to the dog named Rio. Could you tell us a little bit about bringing that much of your, what seems to be bringing that much of yourself into your books? I, I mean, it goes down to the dog named Rio. <laughs> named Rio when I was writing these. You know, they say, write what you know. And, uh, I have a very good relationship with my wife. She's, she's had breast cancer for 10 years now. We've been dealing with that. Oh, I, have two, wow. I have two adult children. Uh, they're a year apart and uh, they go, they've gone through all the things that, you know, children go through in their teenage years. Now they've graduated from college. They're 26 and 27. And I've just tried to take this series and I parallel it. I mix the two worlds. I mix the the legal crazy stuff, you know, the shoot 'em ups, the action, and all that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the guy goes home and he deals with these very real problems in his own family. I try to get just get this mix going in the book of family and action and craziness, and of course, black humor, which is how I deal with some. <laughs> right. And well, it, it just, I don't know, it just seemed to work. 
Cool. Well, that's what you want. Yeah. So how did your journey get started? You're with Thomas and Mercer now, um, which is the Amazon mystery imprint. I'm, I'm going to do three books with them, and then I don't think I'll do any more. To uh -huh. be honest with you. Um, I like them. Uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed going back through the process of having a developmental editor. Uh, they're just so important. And then having copy editors, and I've enjoyed that process. But um, I don't enjoy not having uh, control over the marketing. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. You know, they give me a little bit of input into the covers, but they did, they did a really good job with the cover on the first one. I'm going to write two more. I'm writing a trilogy for them. But the money is just way better in, mm -hmm. in the indie stuff. For yeah. Me. You know, so you go back to the traditional stuff, and it's like, man <laughs> yeah yeah purely purely business point of view it, wow. it's, i'm a i'm a i'm a traditional publisher's worst nightmare <laughs> i really am you know i don't need them and right and they know it and uh i think that they make um i think they make mistakes when they gouge readers and they and they don't right. pay writers what they should pay them and now i'm at a point with the dillard series where as far as this how successful it's become and how much money I'm making off of it. So yeah. I can just keep doing that. Right. So I may have misunderstood. Is the Dillard series entirely indie? Is it all is it all you or was that partly Thomas and Mercer? No, the Dillard series started out with Penguin. Okay. Um, okay. The the first three were published by New American Library, which is uh, Penguin imprint. After the first one was released they had bought two more. I had written the second one. I was almost finished with the third one. And my editor, really, really nice lady, she um, was running their mystery imprint, uh, Signet. And that was sort of the, an instant client was sort of their flagship book. And she decides to get married of all things. <laughs> and she moved to LA. She quit and moved to LA. And so I was orphaned. And at that time, Amazon and Kindle were coming into the picture hardcore, and the New York guys just didn't know what was going to happen. So they were okay. cutting way back on everything. And they didn't even put me with another editor for three months. And when they did, he made it very clear to me that he was busy, he wasn't all that interested in my genre, and he wasn't all that interested in me. And then about... Just what you want in a yeah. <laughs> ideal professionalism from this the editing. Is, yeah, this is great. So about a year later, I get a letter from them saying they're putting putting the first one out of print, and then six months after that, I get a letter they're putting the second one out of print. Uh, and so I call my agent up and I say, I want the rights back to those books if they're not gonna, you know, if they're not gonna do anything with them. And he told me that Penguin does not give the rights back to writers. And oh. at that point, I had become very frustrated with him. And I said, what good are you, man? You know, who are you <laughs> yeah. here? And that's when he fired me. And <laughs> that, was, that was the end of my relationship with, with my first New York agent. But uh, eventually, I started fighting, basically, with Penguin, just this back-to-back uh, -back letter war. And I was asking them to prove to me send me the marketing plan for the second book, send me the marketing plan for the third book, because the law says that you have to give a book that you're going to publish a reasonable chance of success in the marketplace. And they didn't send me anything because they didn't have anything. So eventually I had them, they knew it. I told them they'd, I'd sue them if they didn't give me the rights back and they caved in and gave them back. So in the meantime, I wrote two more. So when I decided to go indie and go self-publishing, I had been just devouring uh, Joe Conrad's blog, all these other people that were into indie stuff. And I had five books, and I thought they were good books. And I started, you know, doing the giveaway thing and then selling them for 99 cents. And then within a two-month period, I had five of them up, and I was selling them at 2.99, and I was selling a lot of them. And within six months... You know, I made this ridiculous amount of money in one month. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to keep on this train. And we've refined it over time, and we've learned how to um, 
promote ourselves within Amazon. We we committed totally to Amazon, and which you know it means I can't get into a Barnes and Noble bookstore. I'm never going to be on New York Times bestseller list. But I don't care about those kinds of things. Right. I do, you know I do this to because number one I love to write. I love to tell stories. Number two I like to make a living at it. You right. know, I support my family with this, and that's the best way for me to do it. And we, I just spent um, a week out in, in Seattle. My son and I went out there. He's the marketer. I'm the writer. Uh-huh. And he has a he has a degree in, in marketing. He's a really, really smart young man. And uh, he's learned how to do it. And I stay now somewhere between number, depending on what kind of promotions going on, I stay in the top 15, top 10 of the mm-hmm. Amazon writers. And it's just... It's turned out even better than I thought, but right. I'm, I'm going to do these these three for Thomas and Mercer, and then reevaluate that. They have so much marketing power that I thought I bring this huge platform with the Dillard series, right? And I thought if we get them on board with combining the power mm-hmm. of that and their you know their own marketing power we could really blow it up. Right. They, um, I don't, for whatever reason, they were a little lukewarm on mm-hmm. the first one, but it was their most, by far, their most profitable book in the last quarter, last year when they released it. So they're getting more enthusiastic about it. <laughs> it's already sold over 100,000, so. That's phenomenal. Wow, yeah. I just want to say bravo on all yeah. of that. That's and amazing. I'm loving this. I'm loving this interview because to any of our listeners who tend to be indie authors who are listening and haven't read your books, um, I was just on the edge of my seat as you're explaining your escape from Penguin. Yeah, and I was like, so, this has got to be a book. <laughs> yeah, well, well, but that you know that therein lies the legal thriller. In addition to having a law degree, I have I'm a mystery reader from law back, but I was never like dev- devoutly reading legal thrillers. And so I would love to know your take on the genre, like that genre and kind of what's key to it and how Joe Dillard or how your writing fits into like the legal thriller genre or how it might be different. It's a little bit different. Um, A lot of guys like to just stay in the courtroom and they uh, they like to get into the strategy between the lawyers and the nuances and all of those kinds of things. But I try to actually stay away from the courtroom unless I have something really powerful or I have a, a legal issue that's I think the readers will find really interesting, and I do it in such a way that it where they're not yawning through most of it, or they don't feel like I'm preaching at them about this aspect of the law or that aspect of the law. There are only so many ways that you can write a reaction to something that goes on in a courtroom. I mean, your chest can only get tight so many times. <laughs> so, so many times, you know, and yeah, it, the it, judge it, can only be so awful, and then you have to kill him. Yeah, <laughs> it just gets it just gets tedious after a while. So I think my stuff has been different. It's and it's a lot like Grisham. Grisham kind of stays away from the courtroom a lot, and you build the suspense outside of the courtroom. Eventually, you might get there. Um, I don't do a lot of climatic trial scenes. I did it in the uh, in the first book, but it wasn't a long scene. All of my uh-huh. trial, uh-huh. all of my trial stuff is pretty pretty short. And then I uh, I think the main difference in uh, in my stuff as far as the genre goes, is number one, I have a, a protagonist who's not a drunk. He's not a, an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. He's, a, mm-hmm. he's, just a, he's just a good guy in a complicated, situ- in a complicated world trying to do the best that he can. And if you've ever been around the world of criminal defense law, it is just full of moral uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. Was that the law that did you practice law? I, I know you have a law degree. Did you practice? And oh yeah, yeah I, 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 I tried everything from murder to everything from DUI to murder. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I, I tried a lot of cases. And it was it was about all I did. I, I didn't like 
divorced and I didn't like um, real estate and those kind of things. I, I like constitutional law and constitutional law is the basis of criminal defense. So I just went toward criminal defense and that's what I did. But you get out of bed every day and you're fighting with a, you're fighting with your own client, you're fighting with a cop, you're fighting with a judge, you're fighting with a prosecutor. It's a constant battle. Mm -hmm. And you're always, you know, your your primary duty is supposed to be to your client. You have to zealously advocate your client right. who is accused of doing a lot of times of doing something terrible. And a lot of times or most of the time they did it. But they're not going to tell you that they're going to lie to you. And you can look at the evidence and you know they're lying to you. So it becomes this really, really strange dance. You know, mm -hmm. between you and the client and the, and the system, and you try to figure out how to work the system, and you try to do your best by your client without breaking rules, but it's almost impossible to do. Mm -hmm. there's, there's just so much gray there. I found myself pretty surprised, but it was, it was a perfect ending because it's one of those things where you're still surprised, but it feels automatically like a puzzle piece clicking into place. Yeah. Um, where you're like, oh, this is exactly where it was headed from the very first sentence. Yeah. The innocent client. Yeah. yeah. And, um, an innocent client. Yeah. I think that that was key, but I, I, I also think what you do with having this good guy in a bad situation, but he's, he earns a decent salary, especially in the first book, right? And in the first book, he's defending someone worth defending. But he is a very good guy, but he's in a profession which makes him defend people who aren't good, which I think that, like you said, that conflict and that dance is just presents an opportunity for tension in every single sentence and every single interaction and every... and. I think that that thread of the inherent premise really, and I, as I said, I don't know much about legal thrillers, so I don't know if this kind of premise is one that's popular, so you and Mary will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I found it really compelling and surprising and, and sort of interesting um, in, in ways that I wasn't expecting. So I can really see that being a huge draw to readers, because it was to me. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. they. Uh... I swear the ones that, I mean, they just blow through this series. They, they binge read it. <laughs> they really do. I, I get them all the time over the website. You know, I, I get just a lot of emails and I answer all of them. But uh, wow. <laughs> I do. And it, 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 you answered it, us. it makes for, um, I don't know, it makes for real loyal folks when, when, when you write back to them, you know, when, when they write to you and you write back to them. But uh, they want to know as much about the family as they do about the legal cases. Yeah. They, they, they feel invested at this point in whether Carolyn is, they, I get emails all the time. Don't you dare let her die. <laughs> and they don't know that her, that that character is based on my wife and there's no way, no way I'm going to kill that character off. Yeah. <laughs> no way. So, so, but, so that, as we talk about, fictional wives that can't be killed off. Um, I've One of the series that your books reminded me of was the Spencer series uh, by Robert Parker. I don't, I don't know if you've read them, but they have the good guy Spencer who is a detective, but it's similarly kind of, he, the, the, I found the voice to be a little bit similar, but also he lives in a world of white hats and black hats. And it really interested me. In other words, Spencer's good. His friend Hawk is good. Um, and then other people are either good or they are bad. Yeah. But then I felt like you've extended that in a really interesting way because, yes, Joe Dillard is a good guy and his family thinks he's good and people think he's good. But he's still going to set somebody's shed on fire if he feels <laughs> if he feels that, you know, it's more, you know, it's he's called upon to do so. You know, he's not he's good with you're good at I felt like you were so good at showing good people who are not perfect and then you have bad people like the sociopath killers who can sometimes make a whole lot of sense right. and corrupt people who aren't just kicking dogs and puppies all the time just to show how evil they are. They're thinking things through and doing their job. They're just also corrupt. Right, exactly. When I took him from the defense side to the prosecution side, mm -hmm. he gets over on the prosecution side, and what he realizes is man, this game is the same from this side. 
these people, it's a game. It's, it's a competition. Once a charge gets filed, it's not about justice. It's human beings trying to win a game. They're, the people that are in the profession are bright and they're um, competitive just by nature. I'm talking about the lawyers. Uh, right. the, uh, the police officers, for the most part, are good people. But if they file a charge against somebody, they want to win. Prosecutors want to win. Nobody ever wants to feel like they did something wrong. Right. And uh, it just turns into this contest. And he gets on the other side of it. And once he realizes that, that the people on supposedly the good guys can be just as bad as the bad guys, he goes, you know, the hell with this and goes back over to the other side because he's just more comfortable over there. But I wanted I wanted the readers to um, to see it from both sides. It seems to me like something that comes through in your writing is an ability to sort of take people as they come. And that doesn't mean they can be nicer or they can be meaner. They can have all sorts of different qualities, but to take them as they, like, I, I was struck in a, a scene where Joe tells us how how he doesn't like this particular police officer. They've had fights, they, something about, a, I think, a church arson. And um, the first thing we see the police officer do is do his job. Then he's not very helpful. But you gave the police officer that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Dillard, I can't believe you're here bothering me again or anything like that. Yeah. I, I knew that guy. Those things happen, you know. Um, when you um, when you're a defense attorney and you go up against police officers, you don't just run into um, one cop one time. You you run into the same cops over, especially in a small town like this. Yeah. Um, there are sixty thousand people in Johnson City, and I practiced in I don't know five six different counties around here all rural, nothing over 50,000. So you just run into the same cops all the time and you have, uh, you have fights and you have arguments with them and, but you try to respect them. And mm -hmm. so when you come back the next time, you don't want to, you don't want to just, you know, make an enemy out of the guy immediately, but you also, at the same time, you have a job to do and you have to rep represent your client. And if that means really going after somebody on a witness stand and, and challenging their credibility, challenging them, they have to realize that it's part of the game too. And it's harder for them. Their cops are thin skinned. I'm telling you, they, uh, <laughs> there really was uh, just so many police officers. If you went after them hard in a courtroom, and then went up to him afterwards and said, you know, stuck out your hand and go, I hope you understand this is just part of the, this is just part of it. They turn their back on you and walk away mm. and um, never, just never want to speak to you again. Mm. They actually want to take their firearm out and shoot you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just, I was just had a little thought that actually reminded me, we're going back, going back to something you said before about Joe Dillard not being the kind of guy that drinks or is an anti-hero. And what I actually, it's, I think what makes it, what makes that work even so much more powerful is again, right, he is this criminal defense lawyer. So he might not be an anti-hero, but the situations that he is often put in can almost cast him in that light to other people. Right. And Absolutely. so it's like you almost get what probably people feel like a lot in their own life, where they feel like they're always trying to do right, but the world is kind of getting in their way, you know, and casting him in this position. And and I think that that actually, I can see fans of the anti-hero finding similar notes in this story, but the hero is still has moral fortitude, you know. Well, he, he when, when a lawyer walks into a, to a courtroom standing next to a killer or a rapist or somebody like that, that most of the people in the courtroom and especially the victim and the victim's family, they look at the lawyer- The same way. The same light. Yeah. The guy that he's defending. And mm -hmm. that's just very, it's very difficult for people to separate those two things. And it's a diff, it, it's one of the reasons that lawyers drink so much. <laughs> uh, it's one of the reasons that they kill each other or <laughs> kill themselves on a fairly regular basis it's just a it, it's a stressful yes. difficult job yeah. i i got off on it for a while um i mean i really really liked it because i don't like to be bored 
But um, after a while, it just got got to be too much. And this is this is way better. I feel like we need a shirt that says like "Hug a lawyer," <laughs> like "See a lawyer having a bad yeah. day." Yeah. Like, Good give luck. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd go that far because yeah. some of those guys are not too huggable. Yeah. But uh, they, uh, it, it is a, it is a difficult job. Everybody hates lawyers until you need one. You know. Circling back on something that struck me as probably key to your brand, when I think about books that go into the medical profession or the legal profession or policing, you know, these very, you know, these very inherently dramatic professions, mm -hmm. something that stuck out to me, I always want to know more. Like, this is a real thing that happens to real people. I always want to understand it better. And as a former law student myself, it just struck me that the way that... I have never come across explanations of the law broken down as cleanly and clearly as you do, which happens to be exactly the way that you want to be writing them on your law school exams and in your legal briefs. Like, this is what, you know, the right to search starts here and it goes here, but we've got this issue here and, you know, and breaking it all down. And I thought that that, I suspect that's something else that draws people that are drawn to the legal side of your books, that there's the personal... And then for me, the legal is this feels like a mini gentle education. I'm glad to hear you say that. I, you know, I was a journalist before I went to law school. So uh, I, I think that comes through as far as just the, my style is, is pretty bare bones. I, I, I'll tell you an interesting little story. I had a uh, criminal court judge here in uh, Jonesboro, Tennessee. And this happened, I was about three years in and you file motions. If you want the judge to do something, you file a motion. And then you file a brief in support of the motion, and the brief has the law and your argument. And you say, Judge, I want you to do this, and that's the way it works. He ordered me to stop submitting briefs and arguments with my motions because they were too persuasive. <laughs> I swear he did. He said, I would rather just do the research myself. Don't write them anymore. Because <laughs> I come out, I'm as soon as I'm done reading it, I'm on your side. I'm out here and I don't give the prosecution a fair shot. And I'm going, oh man, taking yeah. my taking my job away from me. Can I put that as a quote on my website? <laughs> right. I mean, I, he never accepted another another thing from me. I would I would wow. I need his secretary to send him back to me. It's a power. It's a power because, as you know, as well as I, there's lots and lots of lawyers that are not as skillful at writing and explaining. And so if you are the writer that can get your ideas across clearly, you have a big advantage. So I, especially at the appellate level. Yeah. You know, yeah. When you get, get up to the higher courts, yeah, you do. So I guess my question would be, how do you, I mean, what is your writing and editing process like? I mean, do you work with a developmental editor and a copy editor or um, what it, when you sit when down I, to write, what are you thinking about? Uh, when I'm doing the, when I'm doing the Dillard stuff, I, uh, I just start with a fairly small idea, um, like a case or an issue that I want to get into that I think people will really enjoy. And then I go back and I reread the last book and just catch up with where the family is. I just sort of take off. I, I like to um, just kind of set the characters in motion and see where they go. I like to create conflict every chapter, set it up and resolve it, but you know, resolve it in a manner to where it continues on to the ne next part of the book. But you know, I, I'll get up, I get up pretty early. I get a little bit of exercise, get it, get myself awake and then I write for um, I write for three or four hours, get something to eat, move around a little more, go back for a little while. Sometimes I don't go back in the afternoons, I wait and go in the evenings. When I get to a point in the book, about halfway through the book, I figure out how it's gonna end. Mm -hmm. And then I start writing toward that end. And once I get to that point, I get kind of obsessive about it. And I'll write I'll write ten hours a day, you know, um, which is hard to do. I mean, mm. mentally, mentally, it's draining. Yeah. Um, I just, I just get into it and, uh, stay after it. And then once I, once I get through with that, I worked with developmental editors on the first three Dillards. I have not had a developmental editor since on the Dillard series, but I do have, um, several people that proof them. And I have a, a guy in uh, Texas named Leo Bricker that is a great copy editor and one of these guys that 
can read one word at a time and mm. sees words that are transposed and, you know, the, the, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. reading along and you'll miss that. Leo doesn't miss those things. And one of the, one of the other advantages to um, being independently published is when I launch a book, I just launched a book um, back two weeks ago called Judgment Coming, and it's a Dillard book. I've only had one of these so far, but the readers find mistakes and they send them to my website and they say, you screwed up here and here, this should be this. I have a person at uh, Kindle Digital Publishing that I can send that to and say, will you fix this please? And boom, they fix it. That day they can go into the file and fix it. Mm -hmm. and so going forward that, you know, if you do a print run of 50,000 books and it has a mistake in it, you can't fix it. Yeah, you're kind of, you're up, up yeah. an unpleasant creek. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but that that's the way I do it. Um, it's all about discipline. One of the other things I really noticed for me was a huge, I personally, um, I loved the first book, uh, An Innocent Client, and I also loved um, Injustice for All. Uh, but for me, Injustice for All, kind of, it was a little more complex. I felt like I could really felt like I could see an evolution of you as a writer. Um, and I, I wondered if you felt like that too, or if you, how, how do you feel your journey as a writer has gone over this long series of books that you've been writing? I feel like I've matured a lot. Um, I've refined my, uh, I've refined the process. You know, I try to get better at the craft all the time. Um, I, that's a book that I experimented with the, with the tense, I made it first person present, and that's the only time I've done that. And I think it made the um, experience a little more intimate for the reader. Uh, it's a dark book. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, it is. A lot of them are kind of dark, but I keep them light in some ways. But you know, they're adult subject matter in a lot of them. But that was a that was a dark book, and that came that actually originated from my grandmother. Um, the first scene in that book where uh, Katie's sitting at the uh, at the dinner table yeah. and her father shoots her mother and shoots everybody at the table. That happened to my grandmother. Oh, my God. And, you know, she had told me about it, and she, she used to tell me stories. So I just thought, I'm going to start a book with this, <laughs> and we'll see where it goes. You yeah. know? I, had, I had other stuff. I had a lot of other stuff going on in the book, too. But it, one of the things that I enjoy doing is, I call it spinning plates, you know, where you get three or four little plot lines going and then have them all converge and get all the plates down and, without breaking them at the end of the book. I feel like I've gotten better at that. I've gotten better at plotting. Um, dialogue, I've gotten better. I, I feel like I've gotten better at it. Um, I let Joe age and his family age you know, it's not like a Reacher novel where the guy is the same in every novel. He eventually, his son Jack is going to become way more involved so the series can stay young, you know, as he gets older. And I don't know, I just, <laughs> I just like to keep, I like to keep experimenting with it. Yeah. I, I, I was really struck with Injustice for All. Um, and, and as you mentioned, so it starts off with this young woman and the whole first chapter is you are in the eyes of this, you know, teenage, young teenager girl. Um, whose family get you know, and her father blows the whole family away with a shotgun, and um, and you stay, but she survives, and you stay with her through the book for some time, um, through a lot of you know, through some bright times and some other real hardships. Yes. And someone once described to me that you know the appeal of mystery, it, the, the whole genre is you know, sort of to see justice done. You know, to, to sometimes it's to see the puzzle solved. But to see, you know, a world that is broken made right, and the best way to do that is to start with the dead body, and here is this thing that is broken in the world, and somehow it must be made right. Um, and I thought you did. I thought that the story of Katie was an incredible. In like, I actually don't remember reading a better example of how much I wanted to think, see things made right for her. Yeah, yeah, and she was she was one of those. You know how you, you hear the old cliche, you know, bad things happen to good people. She was a she was just a prime <laughs> example of that. Yeah. yeah. She 
the kid did the best she could at everything she did, and every time she turned around, something something really horrible was happening, and then she winds mm -hmm. up at the end, you know, it gets even worse for her. But eventually, that got somewhat righted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was tough. That was a tough, I mean, again, I don't want to spoil this for our listeners because I think if you haven't read these books and um, if you are thinking of writing mystery or a legal thriller, you should have already read these books. <laughs> and if you are, read them now. And even if you're not, I mean, because I'm, I'm a romance writer, um, that's what I do. And uh, I think that there's a lot to be learned about kind of plot and intensity from these books and there was this one scene where you're you're with this girl and there's just terrible terrible thing happens to her it's the sort of one of the last scenes with her and I just remember being gutted and having this moment being like this can't happen like this isn't allowed to happen yeah. and then just this righteous fury you know and as because I'm not a huge reader of this genre I was really surprised that the scene took that turn and that, that was surprising, I think, even for the experienced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, I think it really exemplified kind of world. But I think that you can go that dark in these books because Joe is such a decent guy. If Joe was like a pit of bottomless sorrow, too, then, I, you know, then a reader might just be tempted to close the book. Well, he just he tries to make sense of it. Right. He tries to make sense of these terrible things that go on around him. And sometimes he he succeeds and sometimes he just beats the hell out of somebody i put him through a great deal you know i put him through a lot but um our, we've been through a lot you know everybody anybody i think that survives 40 50 years on this on this planet goes through a lot not yeah. a lot of people live, live in the golden bubble you know They're, everybody goes through all of these hardships and all these things that aren't, aren't fair and they go they experience sickness and death of loved ones and all those kinds of things and it's it's just a reflection i think of the world around us and i put i just put joe in the middle of it you know yeah. have him have him try to do his best you when you suggested books for us to read of yours um, you also suggested river on fire yes. and uh, which is quite which for those who haven't read it is quite is not part of the, this series at all it is the uh story of a young a male orphan who is like kind of born into this little boy's home orphanage and tells you kind of <laughs> everything that ever happens to him that he thinks is interesting throughout his childhood. It seems like that's a very special property to you. And I'd like to know more about what makes it, what, what makes this piece special to you. The book's about violence. Um, the, the sixties, especially the mid to late 60s during the, the Vietnam era and all the civil unrest, um, you know, the Mansons, the mm -hmm. assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. I was uh, 12, 13, you know, 14, 15 at that. If, if you notice the, the, the main symbolic item in that book is the Al Kaline bat that he just treasured mm -hmm. so much. And he had never let anyone use it. He'd never hit a ball with it. But at the end, he uses it violently. He has to beat this guy with it to get him off of uh, the caretaker at the at the home. And I just wanted to tell a literary tale about the violence of the late 60s and do it through the eyes of an innocent. The boys are fighting around him, and then he's um, he uh, falls in love with this girl. And the next thing you know, the the father's got his got his boot on the kid's throat, you know. And then he's reading about the Pueblo incident, and he's reading about these people getting assassinated. And then his friend goes off to Vietnam and gets killed, and it just builds and builds and builds. And then the uh, grandson of the the owner of the place comes in and everything blows up and ran, ends up committing this violent act and getting shipped off. That is what that book is about. A lot of people don't really get that, and so maybe I, I missed it, but that's what I was trying to do. I was curious about how much or not the book was connected to Holden Caulfield, who Randall, the main character, tells us he's not very impressed by. 
Uh, it, it was impressed or influenced very much by that book. You know, I've read that book. I've read it six or seven times. I was kind of fascinated by it. And one of the reasons I was fascinated by it was because I was kind of underwhelmed by it. I thought he yeah. was, I, I thought he was a um, privileged, whiny kid, you know, but, you know, maybe he, was, maybe he really was mentally ill or maybe he was just privileged and wanted to drink and cuss and get thrown out of school or, or maybe he was a genius. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, kind, yeah. kind of a kind of a parallel between Randall and, and Holden, but Randall's an innocent and has no privilege and Holden is privileged and certainly not innocent. You know? I see. Yeah, yeah, I thought Randall's takedown yeah. in Holden, which is sort of like, well, he's just, you know, he's, he's privileged and he's uh, whiny and, you know, I'm sorry his brother died, but stuff happens. I mean, everybody yeah. has people die. And I thought that yeah. was so great. Well, it's, it's kind of impish on my part, but I, I just, I had to do it. So <laughs> I did, just being a wise ass. <laughs> When I think of the literary qualities that I really pull from from your work, um, something constantly made me think of um, a, a particular outdoor writer that uh, Patrick Romance, who I read everything by, but just generally, especially the first uh, Dillard book, um, spends a lot of time describing, telling us about the scenery and making us feel this place in this um, kind of... I, Simplest the word I've got, it's not the right word, but sort of this clear. flowing, clear prose. Um, and it, it did, it's interesting that you're, I didn't realize you had a background in journalism because I wonder if that also brings to it, but just that awareness of the natural environment, I think is very cool. I think that this area where I live, um, number one, it's beautiful, has all four seasons, mountains, and the people could be cliquish, but the mountains here, to me represent two sort of different things. They, they represent a barrier that almost makes you feel safe, but also a barrier that keeps you from kind of knowing what's on the other side of them. Mm. You, you, can, you can stay hidden here, you can stay cliquish here if you want to. There are driveways were covered in what I call redneck asphalt, and that's flattened beer cans. <laughs> really? Really have, yeah. I've, I've been to, to Aesthetically, Trump. what is that like? Well, aesthetically? Yeah, I mean, is it an aesthetic purpose or they're just flattening beer cans willy No, they, it's, it's how they, instead of gravel. Okay. No way, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, they use it instead of gravel. They use <laughs> beer cans and they just run over them with their cars. They take them out, <laughs> spread them out, and lots of red, white, and blue. But right. uh, it... Uh, there's there's that there's that this whole um just backwoods still mountain redneck uh you can find all of that you want here um people that can't read uh, people that are terribly they're just unhealthy the the opiate addiction problem here is as bad as it is anywhere in the country but then there's a medical school here and there's a pharmacy school here, and they're a really good orchestra here. They're, it's it's a real interesting, real interesting place. And uh, in a way, it sounds like a college town. Yeah, it's a college town. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's a college town. Johnson City is the ETSU has about I think about twenty three thousand now. It's pretty wow. Pretty good size school yeah. now. You read the newspapers and you see all these strange things. And when I was in when I was in the system defending these people and going to these places and going out and talking to witnesses and going and looking at crime scenes just to see what happened. I mean, just be amazed what I, what I saw because, you know, I was raised in rural Michigan. We moved down here when I was 12. And uh, it, rural Michigan is not the same as rural mountains. It just <laughs> is different. I've just fallen in love with this place. I'm here this long. I guess I'll just stay. One thing I've noticed, actually, there's sort of, I think that there, I wonder if that's, this is kind of a theme, especially in the romance side of th things. I see a lot of small towns. I see a lot of rural settings. I see this kind of, and I wonder if this is kind of coming back. I wonder if this is a setting that hasn't been explored as much by people in the big five recently. And I wonder if there are readers who are kind of, 
I, this is just my pet conspiracy theory I have, that there are readers of these like big five who are kind of, you know, these big five publishers in New York City who can't really get some of these narratives as well and so might not publish them and so they're finding a home in self-publish and in the indie world. But that's that's just my silly little theory. <laughs> what do you no, think of your silly little there's theory? Something, there's something to that because when I was um, when I was with with Penguin, um, my uh, my agent was always saying, you know, you ought to think about moving the setting. You know, you should think about moving the setting. New York, there, there are just so many more people live in New York. Hmm. New York, set the book in Chicago, set your books in LA, wherever. And I'm going, no, man, it, it's, mm-hmm. this place is a place. It has right. people in it. And the stories are about people. They're still wonderful. They're still mean. They're still hateful. They still feel joy and pain. Right. And they're still devious, you know, and I can use the setting as metaphor a lot. Um, you know, him, him drowning in this lake, you know, uh, was was a metaphor for him not he wasn't going to allow the right, the, right. the legal system to kill him. Then Nature he, is so helpful for metaphors. It, it is. <laughs> I can I can use the mountains as metaphors a lot. So yeah, and, and and I do. So I've heard from so many people that do get tired of the whole apartment thing, um, high rise thing in New York and and Chicago and Boston and all that, and they enjoy these southern. So the things that Justified did pretty good, you know, on TV. So it's yeah. people like the South. They're well, fascinated by it. Yeah. The thing is that place. you and T.S. Choice, you both know it and you both have the ability to write what you know and really communicate more than just, oh, the cute house with the pink, you know, the cute street with the pink house and the blue house and you know, and this sort of fantasy of what rural life is, I think it's completely different if you're writing the setting that you have lived enough to get really annoyed with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, uh, if you know the history of it, too, you know the people, you know, it, yeah. it just helps. It, 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 you can feel it. You, yes. know, you can just feel it in these different places. There are places around here that are just as dangerous. I mean, you don't want to go into, like, uh, there's a place here called Buck Mountain. You don't want to go up there on a Friday or Saturday night any more than you want to walk into some neighborhood in New York City that you're not familiar with. So there are those kind of places here. They're, I don't know, just like there is mm-hmm. every other kind of place. But one of the things about here is that it is just these panoramic mountain views right. are just... God, just uh, indescribable almost. I, I love it. How do you go about getting that clarity? Obviously, your experience as a journalist plays a large part, but um, what what about your, like, what when you, what did you learn when you were a journalist that kind of led you to this transparent, easy-to-read uh, yeah. sentence Please craft? Yeah. Um, I don't try to impress anyone ever with my vocabulary or with um, the poetic nature of my prose, mm-hmm. I, I try to be clear and concise. And I go back and I rewrite and I choose the words very carefully. It's premeditated with me, the, the way I do it. It's it's my craft, it's, it's the way I practice my craft. My craft to me is to tell a compelling story in a concise manner. What do you do when you do each of those passes? Like, what kind of words do you take out? Or, um, you know, how, like... Anything more than four syllables, generally. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Take those That's out. Great. Now, um, I, I listen a lot more than I talk. And I think that I've always been like that. And I think because of that, I have a real good ear for the way people speak to each other yeah so i have a good ear for dialogue but as far as describing say the mountains i just try to get i try to convey the thing the the beauty the the feeling as as concisely as i can and i just I, i i the sentences are fairly short you know the paragraphs are fairly short most of them um it's just the way it's turned out to be. One of my 
best-selling books that I was really surprised was it was a very short novella, 20,000 words, that I wrote for for an anthology, and it had to be 20,000 words. And so I found myself probably doing six or seven passes, just taking stuff out. And Mm -hmm. that book, despite being a novella, which is notoriously hard to sell, sells almost as many copies and page reads as some of my full novels. Um, And I think it's because when you spend that much, (laughs) readers are so impatient and they're not impatient in the way that you think, like you actually have to start a book with someone getting shot in the face every time, Mm -hmm. but they are (laughs) impatient and that they really want the key information as quickly and cleanly as possible. And that's something that you do really well. So thank you for giving me the pleasure of getting to study how you do your craft. It's, it's my pleasure. It's my, really is. I, that's flattering. You know, the last book, I, the last novel I wrote was um, a little over 70,000 words. And I thought, wow, this is short. People are going to, they're just not going to like this, but they love it. They, they like exactly what, what you said. They're not so much. Are they impatient, but they don't want, to hear a bunch of BS. Yeah. You know? They don't want somebody yeah. to impress them just for the sake of impressing them. Tell me a good story. Don't show me how smart you are. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. Uh, mm. I had a writing Hard teacher who once learn. told me not to use any sort of Latinate words, which I'm sure as a lawyer must be so hard, right? Because that's not all legal, right? Yeah. But like that, like a long Latinate word will be the death of you, right? When you can just say something in like two syllables, you know yeah. what I mean? You know, yeah. Sort of the same thing, but that must be so hard as a lawyer. That's like, it's but, but that's the thing is that it sounds like you write like a well-written lawyer, which doesn't mean flowering it up. Right. And the guy that the, the guy that the judge can't even look at anymore because he's so persuasive is the one that's writing clean so that the judge can understand. Right. So that's yeah. a judge. You know, I mean, that that's always, it's all, I, th- I think it's a hard lesson for people who love writing to even take in that there is such a place for making your writing seem effortless and, uh, and that instead of decorated. That's, that's the word. That's what I'm going for. I want it to really seem effortless. It takes a lot of effort to get it that way, but when they read it, it just flows. And it just they just devour it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I think that's the end of the end of my questions, Mary. Do you? I know you've got your like burning. I, oh, I have, yeah. You can hear my strange excitement. little question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my strange little question. <laughs> but I, this is a lawyer to lawyer thing, and it's a lawyer. It's because I am um, I'm very interested in the topic of lawyers and hope, and so I was really struck when I got to the very end of um, River on Fire, which is not about a lawyer. Um, but nonetheless, the last paragraph of uh, River on Fire is all about he's leaving the you know he's leaving his confinement hopeful despite everything he's been through he's hopeful and he goes yes. on and on about hope. Well, as it happens, when I was in law school, <laughs> um, I took a class where we read a lot of books by lawyers about their profession, mostly criminal defenders and criminal appellate, and I noticed that some of the books. The lawyer is like, oh, hope is so important. I always want my lawyer to be, my client to be hopeful. I was so glad that she felt hopeful in that moment because um, people could see it. Then there were books where the lawyer would say um, that they're talking to the client in their, their client is in jail, probably on death row. And they're talking to them and they see the client get hopeful. And these lawyers had, Mm -hmm. and they had come to just dread that. I did a little study on this, and it turned out that that was partly something that the uh, that would happen to the criminal appellate people who are doing things that 99 out of 100 times are not going to work, and they understand that, and they start to freak out about the client believing too much. They're worried about that what that, what that does to a person. But I wondered what you, as a lawyer who wrote this about hope, feel about hope, and how how that might play into your whole, I don't know, worldview or career. I'm an optimist, I guess, by nature, uh, sort of a, I've been very persistent. I've been, um, been through some really, really difficult things just personally. Uh, and then with my wife and, uh, even, even with the law, I had a judge put me in jail for contempt of court. That was fun. And wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. 
It, but it was research. Yeah, yeah, it's great research. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm hopeful by nature. Um, I'm not Pollyanna by any means, but I want to believe that things are going to turn out for the best for for me, but more more so for my family, for the people that I love, mm -hmm. and for anybody that I can help. And I do try to help anybody that I can. Uh, Randall. I loved Randall. You know, this kid had been through all of this stuff, and at the end, he he was just hopeful that he could fall in love and that he could live a good life. And mm -hmm. I I feel that way toward everybody. When you're when you're actively practicing law, it it's easy to become cynical and jaded, but you have to continue to hope and you have to continue to be persistent. I mean, I've gone from mother-in-law's basement after. Oh my uh, gosh! It was awful. And she's a hoarder. And oh, my we goodness. Were, it was awful. But we were down there. This was after Penguin had canned the series. And I couldn't get the rights back from them. And we had just, I mean, we had just exhausted everything. And I'd stopped practicing law. And, you know, my wife asked me when I, when I said, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to write books. I had written, I had read uh, The Lincoln Lawyer by Michael Connolly. Uh, took my son to a baseball camp and I came back and I said I can do this as good as this guy can or better and she said okay go ahead and ha having zero idea <laughs> how difficult a business it is and within within a year I had a book done I had an agent and within 14 months we had it sold not for much and thought it was going to go really good and then boom it crashed and so the legal thing crashes. I kind of crashed that. But then this book thing crashed and burned. And I really thought, my God, what am I going to do? Am I going to end up working at McDonald's with a, with a law degree at 50 years old? And then Amazon comes along, and I got those rights back. And, you know, I've sold, by the end of this year, we'll have sold $2 million of the And Thomas and Mercer is getting on board now. I'll write these two for them. And I think... I think it's just going to go really well. So that has had um, that's had an impact on on me as far as believing that if you know if you remain hopeful and you you you, you <laughs> get back up and you just keep going and you don't quit that eventually you can get things turned around. So I, I I'm pretty I'm pretty hopeful guy I guess. At this yeah. point. Well, and it's a special kind of hope because it sounds like in a way, because we you sort of told us about the difficulties with Penguin before, and that was more kind of the action story of fighting for the rights and everything. And then you're able to go to, and here's what life was like then. Oh, and, man. you know, and to be so unflinching and honest about it um, seemed like to, to bring that to hope so that it's not what we call Pollyanna optimism type stuff, but to bring that depth to a hopeful thing, that's really beautiful. Thank you. I, I, it is, it's turned out to be beautiful for us. Um, if cancer wasn't involved, it would be more, more beautiful, but she just battled that like a champ. It metastasized four years ago and she just hangs in there and we live, yeah. the, the, we live the, the very best that we can. You know, yeah. we, we don't do the one day at a time cliche thing because that just doesn't work <laughs> you know it's <laughs> really realistic but um she's she's put up a, a hell of a fight and she continues to and the kids are, the kids are um are doing really well you know my my daughter has a nine-month-old baby her, oh. her husband is in his third year of medical school my son is my business partner and he has a business of his own on the side and it's all just yeah, just going really well compared to where, where it was just a short time ago. Wow, wow. <laughs> or, or at least again research. Yeah. Uh, wow, that uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm verklempt, and uh, so that's amazing and a wonderful way to end the interview. Yeah. I think because we thank you so much for sharing all of us this with us and. Uh, and I really look forward to, you know, reading the next Joe Dillard. Thank yeah, you. thank you so much. It's, My pleasure. Thank you for reaching out to me. Yeah. yeah. So blessed to have you on the show. Um, you know, at, 
listeners to the show may know, up until this point, we've done a lot of urban fantasy um, and romance. Yeah. And I think it's really so cool to have a, a different kind of voice. Yeah. And sure. even your bird is spellbound. All right. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> 